Well, today is Palm Sunday, the first day of the Holy Week for Christians uh, all around the world. My first Palm Sunday memory is when I was in the fourth grade uh, at our church, at our school. Mrs. Schultz had us reenact the biblical narrative of Palm Sunday, including the live donkey. But what I remember most about that was Mrs. Schultz had it out for me. Apparently, some of my past bad behavior, uh, she was, I was on her radar and she was watching me. And when it came to the palm branches, she actually said, Robert, do not use your palm branches as a weapon to tickle and annoy the other, other children. And she was, I remember those words, I was really, um, I, I know that she was against me because uh, I had quoted from the King James Version about the donkey. Uh, it's a three-letter word, starts with A, ends with S. And so she uh, sent me to the principal's office, but I won on a technicality because I was just reading from, I was just quoting from the King James Version uh, of that account. Uh, this Palm Sunday, here's what we're going to do this morning in our time. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians, but we'll look at it at the end. Y'all know that we have been saying, turn to 1 Corinthians, and we read the text and we preach from it. But today, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6 and just hold your place there or look at it. Wait for it on the screen later. And we're going to preach uh, narratively, tell the story, and then point to this great truth for us that I hope we're um, open to what God has for us today. A uh, Palm Sunday, very important day. And there were two primary symbols of this day the first day of the Holy Week for Christians around the world. And it emanates, it starts, of course, with Jesus. And the two primary symbols, one was the palm branch. And notice that this was the, the symbol that Jesus did not choose. Take a look at John 12, 13 and what it says here. It says, They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. They took palm branches. Scholars and historians tell us that there could be a couple of reasons. It's debatable, but they say that they took the palm branches because they were nearby. That sounds practical, right? We tend to use whatever's now. There's something. Let me use that to symbolize something. So maybe that was it. But there's other writings, extra biblical literature at the time, that indicates that palm branches served as a symbolic segue or gave meaning to military conquest, or might, or power, or uh, someone being uh, the Messiah. So there could be something pretty strategic to this. But either way, it wasn't what Jesus chose, it was what they chose uh, to hype up the day and to offer their praise. But look what Jesus chose. I mentioned this earlier, it's what got me in trouble as a fourth grader. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it, has, as it was written. My last trip to the Middle East was in 2015. Susan and I went with friends. And here's a quick little video of one of the shots uh, that I took. This is Jerusalem. And we'll, uh, you'll see a few seconds here and it'll be on Rewind. But this is Jerusalem from just a few years ago. And I want to talk to you about the temple. The Mount of Olives looking over into Jerusalem is one of Jesus' favorite places. And if you're there today, I don't capture it well here, but there's a dome. There's a gold dome that represents the temple. This was originally built in 960 BC by Solomon. It would later be uh, operated by others. Uh, in Jesus's day, it was, it was rebuilt. It was Herod's uh, temple. Now, temples in ancient times are different than churches today. In churches today, we view church generally as a place to go to worship God with other people. But ancient temples by the Persians, by the Egyptians, by the Babylonians, by the Syrians, by the Greeks and the Romans was seen as a place where God dwells. So a temple to the gods was like a palace for the king. This is where God lives. God is not here. 
God is not there. God is there. We must go there. It was a very temple-centric model of religion. And at the time, with these other nations, they had many gods and therefore many temples. How many temples did Israel have? Israel had one temple because they had one God. Others saw themselves as better. We have many temples and many gods, but Israel stood out. Uh, We have one God. There's a group of people that are alive in our day. Uh, They're called Ancient Mount, M-O-U-N-T, short for mountain, Ancient Mount Historians. And they study historic temples uh, around the world, and they've been in awe and so impressed uh, with this one. This temple, the Jewish people would come and they would worship. They wanted to express, they wanted to seek forgiveness, and they wanted to offer their gifts to God. It took 46 years to build slash rebuild this temple. It took some 10,000 men 46 years. They used 1,000 oxen uh, to build it. It's these ancient Mount temple historians talk about how in the world they marvel at the sophistication, the coordination, the ambition of these people. Now, under King Herod, he got these men and these animals to be able to do this. But how they moved the cornerstones, remember that word, the cornerstones of the temple weighed some 80 tons. And they were moved for miles. And they were suspended some 100 feet on the corners. How in the world people today marvel at what Herod and his men were able to do. And at the temple you, would, you could go uh, and you could find um, altars. It was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of basins of water for the purification of sin. There was the Ark of the Covenant, the veil. There was the treasury. There were storehouses for the treasury, which history would say was plundered and pillaged a lot but when you see many of the stories that Jesus when he talks about giving and turning our hearts to generosity he has the temple in mind and how the religious people uh, would give and worship through their giving or exploit the poor and in the temple we would see the outward court the court for women a patriarchal society I say it again on the Sunday before Easter no one has advanced the rights of women more than Jesus Christ and into the society, women were only allowed to go to the outer courts, and there were the inner courts, and there was the, the holy place, and there was the holy of the holies where the veil was, and only the high priest could enter at Yom Kippur, only through the Day of Atonement, only one time a year uh, could they enter into this, to this space, this holy of holy spaces. Some 46 years it took to build, some 10,000 men, some 1,000 animals to coordinate this. The temple was seen in that ancient world as a place where God dwells. And into this, Jesus comes. There were priests there, priests and high priests, and they would wear these vestibules of gold and such. It harkens back to Genesis 2.12 that says this. um, The gold of that land is good. This is in the the garden. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic, uh, Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. This was a scene in the temple. You see, the temple was to represent what the garden did originally. This is where the presence of God dwells with man. The temple is to represent what the garden did originally. This is the intersection of heaven and earth. This is where heaven comes down to earth. This is the place where we can walk with God and experience experience his presence. And here we are at this temple. And into this temple, 
Jesus comes and says, it's going to be different. Take a look at this next passage. The disciples were in awe of the temple. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all the great buildings, replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Not one of them will be left. Um, no one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. What Jesus was saying would be true. What he was saying would come to be true. You go back to Jesus and the temple. He was brought there as a young child. Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple when he was a baby. They brought him back when he was 12 years old. Some of you know this story. At 12 years old, remember this? They brought him to the temple and his parents, uh, he was enamored with it all and his parents left him. And they, they went back home and a day later, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus said, oh, Kevin, I mean, Jesus and she went back. She forgot him. The original temple alone story. And she, she, they went back and they wanted to find their 12-year-old son. And what did they do? They scolded him. And Jesus had a curious response. He said, I am to be about the father's business. Jesus would go back to the temple. In Luke chapter 6, it tells us he went to the temple regularly as was his custom. He placed value in it. But unlike the disciples, he wasn't in awe of it. The massive stones, the magnificent structures. Now, why were the disciples so impressed with the temple? Any guesses? They, they were young. And they were, they were fishermen. They were from Galilee. So they were small town guys, very young men. And they were from the north shore of the Galilee, most of them. And so they went to the big city. It would be like you going to New York City for the first time and pretend you're from like Pearl. And that would be like, whoa, this, this massive stones, these skyscrapers. And that's what the disciples were experiencing. And Jesus in the temple, he praised a widow who gave all that she had. And in the temple, he overturned the tables. He cracked a whip in a literal sense and overturned the tables and drove out the buyers and the sellers in the temple. And at the end, we celebrate this week, this high and holy week. It was in the temple that the veil was torn when Jesus died. And I'm just convinced that on the cross, he looked over and he knew what was happening. All things would be made new. Sins would be forgiven and humanity would be restored. Jesus valued the temple. Now why turn over? Some of us don't have a, we, on, we only have a Sunday school view of Jesus and so we don't have accommodation in our mind for Jesus who would be angry. Uh, why is that? Why do you think we don't have accommodation for a Jesus who would be angry? Any guesses? I'll, I'll be quick to tell you because we see anger go wrong a lot, don't we? James, the half-brother of Jesus, would say the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We see, angry, we see anger in its ugliness. We've expressed it. We've experienced it. Some of us have terribly sad, tragic stories of the anger of a father or spouse or former friend or loved one or boss or somebody that hurt us. We bore the brunt of that. Or maybe you today are in need of God's grace because anger is your thing and someone you're sitting next to could testify to your anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when we see Jesus at the temple angry with a righteous anger, we see Roman occupation. We see the enemies had overtaken uh, this temple. They were occupying the temple and they were exploiting the poor. They had a, 
a system of sacrifice. And by the way, historians tell us that there was one point in Jerusalem, this temple was, uh, it was 20 cubits high and 20 cubits wide and 20 cubits long. That's multiple football fields. So enormous place. And at one point as Jerusalem was growing as a city, still growing as a city, that it occupied some one-twelfth of the, the geographic location of the city. So it's massive. And there were times when it employed a third of the population were employed by the temple, directly or indirectly. Those on the outside um, with, you know, in the feast and the festivals and the Passovers, the uh, auxiliary businesses, if you will. That's a, that's a big thing. We, we talk that way in Mississippi, don't we? Like if you're on the coast, you know about Ingalls Shipyard. If you're, uh, I grew up in a college town, a small college town. Uh, I was one of the few people in my friend group always from first grade through senior in high school that my parents didn't work for the university. If you go to nearby Hattiesburg, a, a good portion of those people are employed with the university where the temple was that central, but the Ro- Romans occupied it. And there was a group of people into this world that Jesus uh, began to minister to. And by the way, there's a point in history where some, um, at one point in a week, there were some 200,000 plus animals, sheep and dove and oxen and bulls that were offered as sacrifice Uh, for the forgiveness of sins in the temple. Someone was making money. Someone was selling those. And they established uh, these laws that had to do with the the dove. Like when Jesus and his mom and dad entered the temple, uh, they offered uh, two doves. Why? Because they were poor. They were poor. That's all they had to offer. And the religious people were there to monitor the the flawlessness of the animals, the, the animals that were without blemish. You want to give God your best because it's holy and you're in this holy place and you want to offer God your best. So there was someone uh, determining uh, the blemishes or the flaws or what was flawless. Well, who was doing that? You know who was doing that? The people in power. And there had to be an exchange. Right? Here's a Hebrew shekel. Here's a coin at the time. And that had to be, uh, that had to be exchanged as money needed to be. You understand this when you travel. It had to be converted into Roman coins. Well, who, over, who set the exchange rate at the time? It was the people in power. And into this, Jesus is seeing that religious people are profiting off God's work. And Jesus enters into this and cracks the whip and turns over the table and drives out the buyers and sellers. And he quotes from Isaiah the prophet and Jeremiah the prophet. And he says this, what, you, what, you, what God intended to be a house of prayer, you have turned into a den of thieves. And quoting Jeremiah, the judgment comes on those who use religion to profit for their own good. And into this, Jesus interacts with these people groups. There was a group of people known as the Zealots. They were the nationalists. You can read things online today about, let's be careful of Christian nationalism. These are people that want to go back to an era where there is, um, allegedly, there's a time where there's a theocracy, where you know, there's one religion and one state, and they're welded together, and it's one, and there's no room for debate or outside ideas. And some people fear that. The Zealots uh, had that in them. They were patriots, and they wanted to overthrow Rome. They wanted to take it back to take back what God and bring it back to its purity. Uh, they had attempts, the Romans, history shows us, uh, built fortresses up above the temple and they would squelch very violently. The Romans were bloody, bloodthirsty, brutal people and they would squash these rebellions, these attempted coup d'etats with violent force, not caring uh, the number of people that they killed. So there was the zealots and then on the other end of the pendulum there were the Sadducees. There's an old preacher joke, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were so sad, you see. 
But the Sadducees were opposite of the Zealots. And the Sadducees were, um, they welded themselves in with the Romans. They served in the temple. And so their reputation uh, was getting uh, colder uh, by the minute. They were, they had capitulated to Roman rule and were seen as betrayers. And there was a group that most all of you have heard, certainly if you're a church person, you've heard of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees took the temple model. They went to the temple, they valued the temple, they revered the temple, but they took the temple model and they took it to the marketplace and they took it to their homes. Uh, now that sounds virtuous, doesn't it? Like we tell you to take your faith, like come here for an hour or so on Sunday and then leave and take it to the streets. But the Pharisees took um, the rituals and the policies and procedures, the protocol. They took this stuff and they took it to the streets in the marketplace and they took it into their homes. And in Matthew 23, Jesus would usher these uh, woes on the Pharisees. Woe to the Pharisees, for they clean the outside of the cup, but the inside, it's rotting. It's a, he, called, he called them whitewashed tombs. Woe to the Pharisees. They put a heavy burden on people's back. You ever known a religious person, they have all these rules and no one can keep them all? And the Pharisees were like that. And they just, they, they worshiped the outward appearance. But inside there was this emptiness. Probably all of us come to a place in our lives in our searching for God. Whether we found him and we're drifting or we're still looking to find God. And we feel this emptiness inside of us. And the Pharisees had all the outward trappings. All the, they gave and they prayed and they fasted. All good things, look at me, all good things. But their heart was so far removed from it. Jesus, again, quoting Isaiah. Some of us as Christians, young people, listen to me. We have a funny relationship with the New Testament and the Old Testament. Look at me. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't. And Jesus quotes Isaiah in Matthew 15, 1. He says, you know, you worship me. These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so into this world, here comes Jesus. And politically and socially, he aligned with none of them. And what Jesus is about to, he began to say things. In fact, it got him in trouble. It's a story that leads us to this week and to Easter, it got him in big trouble. He would say things like, the kingdom of God is near. Hold on, Jesus. There's this temple model. And there's these religious people. And there's this veil. And there's this Ark of the Covenant. There's the outer court and the inner court and the holy place and the holy of holies. There's all of this. There's Yom Kippur. There's a day of atonement. There's the, this special place. And you're saying the kingdom of God is near. One time, a man was paralyzed and his friends did what I hope your friends will do for you. They helped him out. They lifted him up and sent him into uh, a roof so that Jesus could heal him. But before Jesus healed him, he said, your sins are forgiven. That got him in trouble. That was an audacious, bold statement. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And into this, Jesus enters in and he says to them, I've got a new path. I've got a new way. Back to the disciples, they were impressed with the temple. They loved the temple model. They loved Jerusalem. They loved the massive stones and magnificent structures of it all. They were in awe of it. But look what Jesus would say. He would say that in John 2, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. What Jesus said came true. What Jesus said happened. And the world was watching. The disciples were cluing in that he was ushering in something brand new. A whole new way to see the world. A whole new way to experience God. The kingdom of God is near.
to the passage today that I told you we would eventually get to. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 19. I already stole my thunder a few weeks ago when preaching through this letter. It says, do you not know that your bodies are what? Are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. Listen to me, follower of Jesus. You, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're to place value in that you are his created being. You can, through the gospel message of Jesus and his love over you, be comfortable in your skin, be proud of your, how he's created you and made you, and he's the manufacturer, he's the one. And listen, it would, lay, it would earlier say in this letter, the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, again, we looked at it a month ago, but it says that we, we are the temple together. So you, if you're in Christ, you're the temple, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but together we are the body. First Corinthians 12, we are members with one another. First Corinthians 13, we need to love one another. Here's what love really is. Oh, First Corinthians 14, here are gifts. We are to serve each other with the gifts that we have. We're a temple. And Jesus is setting up something entirely new. Are you kidding me? The place that God intended in the garden. The place of the temple, which took over for the garden with its onyx resin and its gold and all the stuff that God had created that man with hands could fashion and put together and assemble. He said, this is the dwelling place of God and Jesus has taken it to a whole nother level of intimacy. He's saying that God dwells in you, in your sin, in your loneliness, in your guilt, in your brokenness. Who feels guilty today? Don't raise your hand because that could be really embarrassing. Yeah, who did something really terrible last night and just stand up? No, no. Who feels guilty today? Who needs their sins washed away? Let me tell you how new this is. Let me tell you how remarkable and radical it is. Don't miss this. Hebrews 10. And by that will, we have, by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body, the temple of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. Remember, it was a foreshadowing of Jesus. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice, this is Jesus. He offered one sacrifice for sins, for yours, for mine. He sat down at the right hand of God. The implications can be staggering. Therefore, brothers and sisters, this is when a preacher needs to preach. Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, this is Easter, y'all, open for us through the curtain, the veil, that is his body. And since we have a greater priest over the house of God, together we're the house of God, we're the temple. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith, that the faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This is the Easter story. This is what I want you to think about today. That in Christ you're the temple. That together as we love and serve one another. We together are the temple of God. We are the place where we experience the presence of God. Where we walk with him and know him and understand him together. And individually. This is the temple of God. It's in us. And we serve together and we express this. A buddy told me this week he's in a dark place. It's not a statement of judgment. I'm just telling you because some of you could be here today. He told me this week. He said it was very blunt to tell the preacher this. He goes, I, I don't think I'm inviting anybody to Easter because I ain't feeling it myself. So my charge on Palm Sunday, 
the beginning of this holy week is for you to be open to experiencing a washing and a regeneration in your sin and the stuff that you're beating yourself up, swimming in an ocean of self-judgment. You know, that's what we do. You know, people go to count, you go to a counselor, you need a therapist, we talk to each other. We're swimming in an ocean of self-judgment. Maybe we don't need the voice of an authoritative parent or uh, someone ugly in our lives. We have, we have a voice in ourselves and we're beating ourselves up for what we're not or what we did. And Jesus is saying to us today on Palm Sunday, hey, here's the thing. It's not about the hoopla. It's not about waving the branches. It's not about the hype. It's about the hope. It's about what I offer. And there's a cleansing. And it's once and for all. And I saw it on somebody's face when I preached this. Uh, Try not to look at you. But you were like, you were amening with, amening with your body. But we can rest. Like we can rest. If your religion is striving and achievement and impressing, can I just say you've gotten the message of Jesus wrong? Rest in who you are. That's the good news of the gospel message. We've been watching. So let me tell you as we close three things that Jesus offers in this new model. Jesus' new temple that's in you and me, love replaces law. Self-sacrifice replaces animal sacrifice. And the vertical is now measured by the horizontal. They had, I've taught this before, maybe some of you know this, there were some, uh, there were Ten Commandments, there was the books, the, the Torah, there were things that were passed on, Deuteronomy 6, we looked at it last week, Psalm 78. They were teaching their children and they were adding on and religion can bust things up. Um, atheists debate with Christians and people of faith, is, is, is religion good? You'll hear me talk about how Christ Christianity is good for the world. Everywhere it goes, when it's authentic, it's good for the world. It's freeing and it frees people. But all these laws, they added to them and added to them. It wasn't, honey, I shrunk the commandments. It was, honey, I added to them. There were 613 commandments. Anybody want to try to keep up with 613 commandments? That's just a little too much. Some of you are in homes where there are a lot of rules and you suffer under the weight of it. And Jesus says there's one rule. And the rule is love. That we are to love one another and listen to me, we're to love our enemies. And that's important today. And with the tool of social media, look at me. I don't know who I'm talking to. It's probably the 930 crowd, but y'all just oblige me. But man, some of you as Christians, can I just tell you to be careful online. Be careful what you stir up. And maybe you're not Jesus in the temple all the time on every issue. And look, I, look I, um, some of y'all look at me now. I'm a hypocrite, okay? I, I, like, I like to argue, ask her. I like to win arguments. But I've been pretty good this week. I've tried to stay off and I've just, you know, you ever do this? You, like, you stay offline, but you just argue with people in your head and you win. Well, that, that's what I've done this week. I've, just, I've won a bunch of arguments. I've reduced people to rubble and they're, they're wrong and I'm right and all that stuff. But I just, you know, because love says something different. We're to love the people that we disagree with. Anybody got room for that? Do you know that's the heart of Jesus? It ought to be in this room. Because trust me, we're going to get in deeper into 1 Corinthians. You're not going to agree with everything I'm about to preach. And it's going to be, you know, so, but to love each other. And love replaces the law. Aren't you glad? Like love is the law. And let me, let me throw that in the negative. If you don't get love right, you ain't got nothing right. Uh, that's the 13th chapter. We'll get into a clanging gong and symbol and all that stuff. But we have to get love right. And then secondly, self-sacrifice replaces animal sacrifice, thank God. You know, the, at the temple they had purification, they had basins and water fed from the aqueducts and uh, they had all these purification symbols and uh, I'm sort of a germ freak. 
but it's kind of weird. This sounds like a contradiction, but COVID got me out of it because some of us were so hyped up about germs. I'm like, okay, we can't live this way. And so I just kind of moved me away from, from it. But like clean hands are a good thing. Wash your hands, take care of yourself, you know, all that stuff. And it's a good thing. But Jesus, one time in John 13, John records this. He got down with his disciples and he took out a basin of water because he was about to crush the temple model. He was saying the mountains and the rivers at the campfires. Remember breakfast on the beach, John 21, right after the Easter story? Uh, Jesus was with his disciples. And in John 13, he washed his feet. Can I tell you, I've been in relationships. I'll be vulnerable, even at sometimes in my marriage. And it's been me. And things aren't clicking. And you're not feeling the love. And the answer is making a decision to serve the other. The back of selfishness is broken by self-sacrifice. For my wife, which is a weekly sense of accountability, it's not me being polished and together on the stage. It's me loving her and understanding her needs and living with her in an understanding way. And some of you need to hear it today because you've got a relationship that you could make better. And it's made better through self-sacrifice. Men, let me just get in your grill with that. The vertical, as the team begins to come up now, the vertical is now measured by the horizontal. Remember the story in Matthew 18 where Jesus says, you know, you're at the altar. And he preaches this on the north shore of Galilee with his guys. And he says, when you come to the altar, when you're at the temple, this was like the actual temple. They had one God and one temple. When you come to that temple and you offer your gift at the altar, and in a moment, we did this at the 930 service, I'm going to ask any who will come to come to the altar. I'm going to kneel at the altar. I'm going to invite anybody that wants to join me to pray at the altar. And Jesus says, when you come to the altar to offer your gift and you realize that your brother or sister has something against you, Give more money. No, he didn't say that. He said, go and make it right with them. Now, here's what I want to say because every sermon has a postscript. I love it. I hear from you. You correct me sometimes. So I want to say this. You, you can't reconcile every relationship. I know some of you now. I'm your pastor. I'm your friend. You're doing what you can do, but the relationship isn't reconciled. I know that. I know that feeling. And it's a hard thing. But Jesus said, you do what you can do. If you're a follower of Jesus... Love replaces the law. Self-sacrifice replaces animal sacrifice. And the vertical is what, uh, the horizontal is what uh, attests to the vertical being correct. But you go, and here's what's crazy. Jesus gave this to his fishermen friends, to his disciples. Let's do the geography. He's telling them that's a 72-mile trip. If they walk in their sandals, their Air Jordan sandals, 72 miles at 3 miles an hour, that's 24 hours. That's a full day of walking. In other words, it, ain't, it may not be convenient for you to forgive. Look at me today on Palm Sunday. It may not be convenient for you to forgive. It may not be easy for you to grant grace and offer hope. It may not be convenient for you to say, I'm sorry. But it's so important to Jesus. And this is the Easter story that I don't want you to miss. Jesus says, go. And it's not convenient at all. Would you stand with me? Father, bless these words, and wherever we are today, would you minister to hearts today, and would you receive our worship? Whether we stand where we are and kneel at the altar, Lord, would we be open in these few minutes, even if 
stomachs are growling for lunch and cares of this world are starting to pull at us, would you give us a few moments where we center ourselves and prepare for this holy week and what you might have for us. And Lord, if there's anybody that missed it last Easter or the Easter before that, I pray this is the week and this is the year that you would minister. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, I want to do what I just said. And if you're, uh, if it's inconvenient or uh, you got some pride or just don't want to do it, stay where you are. But I would love to offer up this altar for us. I'm going to kneel. I'm going to pray. If you're a leader, I really want to invite you to pray before this altar. And let's just ask God to minister to us and to minister to us in this holy week and to bless us in the needs that we have in this space. Let's give him this time now.